Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Helen Games athlete. Still here, kicking it, waiting for gyms to open. Nice. I'm Dr. Mike Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, associate professor at the Kerrig Institute, and yep, still at home. <laughs> and uh, with us today, we have a friend of the show, MC Powers. She's been on a few times before. MC, maybe just a sentence or two about yourself. Yeah, I'm former uh, college strength and conditioning coach. I currently am a supervisor of sports performance at a private uh, healthcare facility um, and distance runner, lifter, and uh, exercise science uh, uh, adjunct professor now at a local a local college. Sweet. Nice. All righty. Um, everybody, after the break, we are going to check in with MC. I just called it uh, a university and healthcare system approach to returning to activity sort of thing. So we're going to get some insights from MC about what she's done whether it's with university students or, you know, clients at her main job uh, and just talk about, you know, what are some of the guidelines that are being followed and that kind of stuff. So when people start getting back to training, how can they do that safely with groups uh, or with single people? MC, are you doing stuff with uh, any single individuals or is it almost always group? Uh, all of my training is group. Mm-hmm. I do some sport rehab training, so people coming off ACL, meniscus, ankle injuries. Um, that can be two or three people. And those are my smaller groups. Um, but I'm mostly in groups, but we'll see if I return to group training. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I have two little bits of news. These are sort of random, I guess, this week. Strength and muscle sport news. The first one... <laughs> this has been a theme for 10 freaking years. Uh, but there's a, a new bit of science journalism floating around that's suggesting that protein damages your health, gives you heart disease. Um, mm-hmm. Not the saturated fat that comes with the Big Mac or all that kind of stuff. This is specifically pointing at essentially meats. Um, this is by Sam Danley. Um, out of State College, Pennsylvania. It says, plant-based foods may play a major role in reducing the risk for heart disease. Researchers at Penn State found diets with reduced sulfur amino acids, which occur in foods like meats, dairy, nuts, and soy. Actually, that's all of the above, isn't it? Uh, Were strongly associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease. So less sulfur amino acids, less heart disease. For decades, it has been understood that diets that restrict these amino acids, these sulfur-containing ones, were beneficial for longevity in animals, said John Ritchie, who's a professor of public health sciences at Penn State. And this is apparently the first epidemiologic evidence in humans that these sulfur-containing amino acids are a problem. Um, The study appeared in Lancet eClinical Medicine. Uh, Here's a quote from the lead author. Meats and other high-protein foods are generally higher in sulfur amino acid content. People who eat lots of plant-based products like fruits and vegetables will consume lower amounts of these sulfur amino acids. These results support some of the beneficial health effects observed in those who are vegan or focus on plant-based diets. So we're back to, you know, um, 
uh, I don't know, preferred focus on plant foods. Again, this really flies in the face of carnivore kind of thing. It'd be neat to get sort of a, you know, um, a rebuttal maybe. It says the average American consumes uh, more than twice the sulfur amino acids of the requirement, of the average requirement, according to the researchers. And apparently there's another recent study in JAMA Internal Medicine from Northwestern University and Cornell that eating two servings of red meat, processed meat, or poultry per week was linked to a 3 to 7% higher risk of cardiovascular disease. They say it's a small difference, but worth trying to reduce red meat and processed meat like pepperoni, bologna, and deli meat. Now, I, I can be down with that, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the part that I think is makes a lot of sense. It's like don't, don't live on these highly processed uh, meats like pepperoni and bologna, uh, except maybe as a treater kind of thing. I don't think I'd be living on that as a staple. But, Mike, what do you think about the – the focus on sulfur amino acids, because this is really saying protein itself. Again, it's epidemiology, right? Not causal. But. Yeah. And is that kind of the theory with, was it methionine? I think they looked at in animals that if you did different diets around that, they lived longer. Maybe that's related to it. I can't remember or not. I haven't read this particular study yet, but mm-hmm. I would assume they corrected for vegetable intake or not did they just kind of slice the population in two and just kind of compare them i mean obviously it's an epi study so they're gonna have to do some type of corrections within it right yeah i don't have the specific methodology i didn't pull the full paper this is just the science journalist sharing this um i'm not going to debate that there's probably some link with sulfur amino acids you can find some data the question is when the rubber hits the road what can you eat Right. I want to write an article called What May I Eat? Because first you can't eat fats like our generation. And then MC, your generation was really heavy, like don't eat carbs. Well, you know, like unless you're a fit person and you need to carb load and you know rely on the energy source. But don't eat fat, don't eat carbs. And then it's don't eat protein. Well, what's left? What is left? Mm -hmm. Um, It'll piss you off, (laughs) you know. Yeah. And a lot of times in epi studies of general population, and again, I know they try to correct for it before all the epi scientists email me, but you're generally dealing with people that don't have a very good diet quality to begin with. They probably have other associated behaviors that I understand you're going to try to correct for. But if you compare that to even a population that exercises or is vegan or is actually whatever insert ketogenic diet here by definition they're probably paying more attention to what they're eating they're probably taking consideration of vegetables and other things and yeah i don't know i just sometimes wonder about epidemiologic studies in general population historically a lot of them haven't panned out with follow-up research in the exact way that we expected them to, to show up either so yeah i've had students say well, if it's not causal if it's not, if that's not rigorous, what's the value? Well, the value is, of course, you can look at hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people, yeah. and then you can try to find a trend. Right, look for trends, and then maybe you do a control investigation. Yeah. But there is power uh, in that kind of blanket sweeping uh, outlook. But um, like, I can't imagine when the rubber, like I said, when the rubber hits the road, whether it's your clients, Mike, or people at Strength Guild. Are they going to be like, well, you know, I'm really not going to eat a lot of sulfur-containing amino acids. Really? Especially because that list of foods, there were some plant foods in there. It's not, you know, they're almost ubiquitous. So to me, it's like you're just going to have to, if you want to call that a risk, then this is one of those calculated risks I'm just going to take, I guess, and try to offset it with plenty of phytochemicals from fruit and vegetable intake or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we also know that, certain things have different effects in different populations too, right? So look at just carbohydrates. If you're a borderline type 2 diabetic, you're going to completely process carbohydrates different than someone who's training eight hours a week. You know, so you could look at a study and uh, you know, people that are borderline type 2 diabetic and be like, oh, look, carbohydrates are bad. Like, well, they might be not the best source in that population, but that doesn't mean you can then extend that to everybody else and say, this is the bad thing now, which it feels like the media wants to do that like all the time just to scare people from eating anything that's food related. Yeah, it, it's always this like reader hook. And I don't think they consider the breadth of what they're saying, like what consumers, the messaging that reaches consumers. When you do a reader hook like this, like, what you know, what's the title of this? 
lower protein diets may reduce the risk for heart disease. Well, lower carb diets reduce hypertriglyceridemia. You know, lower fat diets it depends on what kind of fat it gets. You know, down in the weeds, and I don't know uh, um, the messaging the average person gets. The average lifter or consumer is just really confused. I mean, they have nuts and soy on this list. It's not just meats, you know, in, in the first part of this report. Um, again, again. Did they say how much of a, redis, a risk reduction that they found? Not in the first part. Not in the epidemiology okay. uh, of the, you know, what was being done at um, Penn State. But it, the the other paper that came out just in February, also relatively new from JAMA, uh, the, it was from Northwestern and Cornell, they said 3 to 7% higher risk. Yeah. Uh, and that was just two servings of red meat, processed meat, or poultry per week. It even said poultry. So, I wonder if that's chicken nuggets or if that's chicken breast. I know, right? <laughs> How many times have we done that at conferences? You know, you walk to a poster and they're like, red meat. And I'm like, is this bologna or is this grass-fed round steak? Because yeah. big difference. Anyway, um, Phil, let's just – I mean, I know your answer to this, but <laughs> in your facility – how do you, like if somebody came to you and they saw this because this is a lay report you know uh, it's about some studies but what would you tell them as far as this kind of this stuff goes like certain amino acids could increase your risk of heart disease eat more goat <laughs> <laughs> that's an out man it's it really comes down to what you guys have been talking about it's like nobody's getting fat off you know brown steak and broccoli and no. it really boils down to that. I mean, if we look at it truthfully, the reason this country is so obese is their choices of food, not any macro. <laughs> you know, it's how they it's what makes up those. So they pick out shit, you know, and that's just the truth. If you, if you eat real food, it's real hard to get overweight. Yeah. I mean, 90% of the time. So that's what I always lean back towards. It's just a sensible diet. So yeah. don't eat like an asshole all the time. Right. And when you have to, and I know in your field you do, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, you do it in sort of a planned way. Yes. You know. And you accept that there's going to be some <laughs> – I'm not an idiot. <laughs> you know, I know it's not good for me to cram in pizza and burritos all the time every day. But it gets the job done for what I'm trying to do. Right. So, yep. Which is a temporary thing too. It's not yes. like you're going to live at 275 for the next decade of your life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it's a good point, Mike, about what the other things that they have to control for, and they do try, like you said. Of course, they're going to yeah. try to control for anything else that could, whether it's physical activity or other foods or whatever. Um, but yeah, I always think about the environment that you're flooding the body with these sulfur amino acids. If if the machine is utterly different, right? More mitochondria, better heart function, um, phytochemicals floating around in your blood, all these other things from a healthy lifestyle. Maybe that's not quite as detrimental. You know, um, anyway, I got one more here before we go to break and then we check in with MC about how strength coaches at universities and health systems are uh, trying to return to some level of normalcy. Um, we have talked about AI in the past. When we do prediction episodes about fitness trends, things are going to affect everything. We've talked about gut bacteria quite a bit. Uh, we talked about AI. This is about artificial intelligence. It is going to change medicine, right? Even if you're old like me, it's it's going to come soon enough that it's going to start to have effects. So this one, um, this is from April. Computers predict diabetes with a 94.9% accuracy. Mm. Like, we, we can't do that. A, a physician can't do that. Even if you're like, well, you've got a lot of the predisposing factors, it's hard to quantify and all this sort of thing. Uh, it says, currently, we do not have sufficient methods for predicting which generally healthy individuals will develop diabetes, says Akiro Nomura of Kanazawa University. He's author of a new study that used AI, or artificial intelligence, as a clinical tool to predict diabetes. So there's a CDC report that says that over 100 million Americans have either diabetes or prediabetes. So that's... You know, there's like what? There's over 200 million uh, adults in this country. I, we have like what? 330 million total or something. So, the, you know, the prevalence I've heard for prediabetes is about one in three. 
So Oof. marching toward diabetes, you know, wow. what a mess. Um, I don't think it, by the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that about one in three people have mild hypertension and about one in three people yeah. are sedentary. Yeah. This is very suspicious, right? I mean, yeah, it's epidemiology and it's not causal. I get it. Um, but it is suspicious. Anyway, it says the problem, as Nomura points out, is that healthcare providers don't have a good way of foreseeing who is going to get diabetes. So they point out that machine learning is a type of AI in which computers can learn without programming. They feed in massive amounts of data, like all these data we have about, you know, Americans being, well, again, whether it's central obesity or high, running high blood sugars or being sedentary, whatever it is. Uh, the researchers fed the computer system over half a million health checkup records from 139,000 participants over a decade. Uh, about half of these individuals did not have diabetes, while around 5,000 did go on to be diagnosed. Uh, essentially, then they just let the machine learn. You know, it will try to figure out which are the machine predictors. learning algorithm. Mm -hmm. and, and, yep, and follow the algorithm and be able to predict and learn. You, you know, it takes the the correct results from the last round and feeds into the new one, um, and it just keeps refining it. Uh, it basically it says the machine learning system predicted the future development of diabetes with an accuracy of ninety four point nine percent. So. Mike, you know more about this than I do, but this is the kind of stuff that could perceivably end up as an algorithm on a device or a cell phone, right? I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I'd, I'm not an expert on machine learning by any stretch of the imagination, but I think if you have enough data, the data is accurate, and then you can feed data in to cross-check the prediction, right? So it sounds like in this study, they fed in all the preliminary data and they knew over a long enough time period which people actually did develop diabetes, you can then leave that part out, feed all the data in, say, okay, here's your prediction, X number of people over here should get it, and then you can look to see how accurate you actually were, right? So you can cross-check your own algorithm and get an idea of what's going on. Right, right on. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be a nice tool um, I've got to think of the information they set in there. It's going to be the known risk factors, a lot of things. Like I said, central body fat or a fasting blood sugar. Um, if they have glucose tolerance data, maybe the peak blood sugar after a, a carb challenge or something like that. Um, yeah. a A1C. I was, th I was thinking it's interesting to see what other factors pop up in there too, right? So a lot of these uh, like metabolomic studies, you know, more than once I've talked to researchers who are like, well, I don't know, we just bought the whole array and just ran it because it was cheaper than buying the test we thought. And, oh, my God, look, we saw all this stuff light yeah. up over here, too, that we didn't even know that was going on or that was even related. I wonder, as you do more of these, you feed in more data, do you see other weird predictions that show up? Of course, you always have to ask that, you know, are you running the risk of getting errors from that? And maybe they're not really true predictors or not, but... It may uh, we may find other things that we would not have thought are are correlative or associative. Right, that's a really good point. It's, I, it reminds me of that Isaac Asimov quote. He says the the most interesting quote in research isn't Eureka. It's hmm, yeah. that's funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've noticed that a couple of times too, just doing coffee research, like something. And I'm just a human with the limitations of not being able to run through this scenario nine million times tonight. Yeah, and I'll I'll notice stuff like uh, that's odd, you know. Like we we're, we were seeing a, like more of a um, epinephrine response from females, you know, after they drink the coffee. Then you start digging into why that might be and why it keeps cropping up. And like you say, the neat thing with AI for me is stuff that we wouldn't have thought about, or maybe that our senses yeah. as people we just we wouldn't notice. And weird stuff comes to the fore. You're like, that is really a predictor. Okay, you know. Yeah. So that could help people like MC, I imagine. Uh, MC, do you have people that come to you, like when you do screening and stuff, are they just healthy or are they the sort of, you know, overweight, pre-diabetic type that you see sometimes? Um, I, I have a mix of both. So uh, I have some people that come to me that, you know, they need to lose 30 to 50 pounds and they're trying to be, uh, just get back to being active or be active for the first time in their life. Um, and then I have people that are super fit, um, you know, power lifters or, you know, people that love to do Olympic lifting, that kind of stuff that are super fit. Um, and they're just looking for a group to kind of be pushed. But 
Um, what I think is awesome about our group is that we're able to kind of have those people in the same environment. Obviously, they're challenged and pushed in different ways, um, but you really do see a, a huge difference in in kind of what they're, you know, people with, you know, different goals or where, where they're limited and, and how you can kind of push them differently. It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that's a challenge in any group setting. Phil, what about you? Do people come to you that are <laughs> – because of the powerlifting focus on strength, and everybody's not trying to just have a you know six pack abs and stuff like that. Do you get people that are fluffier and you think could be they might be heading toward diabetes if it weren't for the lifting? Oh yeah, oh yeah, of course. I mean, I've had numerous people that have had type two diabetes, and we you know help get rid of it. Wow. So yeah, I mean that's one big thing. I mean when people come on with me, I mean I'm not, and I've never been a big believer in the big fat powerlifter. Um, that day is kind of gone. Okay. It, it, it ended at when multiply and stuff kind of ended. It, it made sense. I mean, when you can take a hundred pounds of potatoes and shove it in a 50 pound bag, <laughs> yeah, you can, you can squat more. Right. But, uh, Pressure. It, doesn't, it doesn't pan out in the raw world. Uh, now that's not saying some added body weight doesn't help, but it's to a point at, at a point it does. It's to your detriment. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, obviously all that muscular activity, that's why you see a reversal of this prediabetes yeah. or even type 2 diabetes kinds of things, right? Muscular contractions are just so hugely corrective, just hugely corrective. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's unbelievable that even to this day, people do not understand that type 2 diabetes is a disease you give yourself. Yeah. <laughs> By your own, and they just don't understand that. Like, oh, okay, I'll just take a pill. Why don't you fix it? You know, yeah. it's not that hard. Right. So, I mean, obviously there's a big genetic component with type 2 diabetes, but so much of that could be, yeah, a lot of things that are corrected by lifestyle. Okay, um, well, that's it for a little bit of uh, random uh, news, everybody. Uh, I thought what we'll do is we'll go to break, and then we'll come back and we'll check in with MC about what's her approach, whether it's um, in the classroom at a university, like what the heck is she doing with strength conditioning classes? Uh, versus, you know, what she does as part of um, a healthcare system approach and working more directly with clients. But either way, there's a huge amount of pressure to start reopening, right, for obvious reasons, economic reasons. So uh, we'll see what she's doing as far as doing this safely. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming, 
and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie and MC Powers, who's a strength coach and uh, works at both the university setting and in, a, a, we'll just say, a healthcare-related setting. You know, a lot of these systems that uh, crop up are fitness-related and yet associated with the large health systems, regional health systems and whatnot. So I wanted to kind of check in with you, MC, about what what is going on Um are you, first of all, let's do the university part because that might be briefer. What did you do when, when basically the state said, go home, everybody, students go home? Like what is a strength, especially like the lab portion of it? You know, the lecture stuff, I, you know, you put your PowerPoints or some audio online or whatever. But like how did you handle the labs? What was your approach to that? Yeah, so I was teaching a strength and conditioning lab section. So, you know, the class was – you know, 60 to 90 minutes of, you know, the students actually going through strength and conditioning sessions. So, you know, taking them through it. And while we did that, you know, teaching them, hey, this is how you coach it. These are the things you're looking for. Um, When you take a group through this, these are the things that, you know, doing this movement, this is how people might do it incorrectly and why that's not safe. And all of those things about how to coach and teach strength and conditioning, um, And that's super hard to do remotely. So um, thankfully, I had got a lot of kind of the meat and potatoes of what I I really wanted to to teach them, you know, movement patterns, programming, you know, some speed training. And I'd got that done in person in January and February. Um, So, you know, for me, they really missed out on, you know, the fun stuff. Of uh, you know, I had two weeks set aside to teach them Olympic lifting, which I that's something I love to do. It's something I teach my athlete clients right now in my in my current job. Um, it's something that's really fun, and it's also something that gets just torn apart in my profession, right? Done incorrectly, <laughs> very easily, um, kind of gets a bad rap. And I'd love to be able to teach them that and how you teach someone to to do a power clean, and that stuff's really fun. So I'm sad that they they've missed out on on some of that interaction and. Um, I've tried my best to do it remotely. Um, a lot of the resources I've had, I have, I've used to create online assignments and try to make it as interactive as possible. Um, so that, and another part of it too, is my experience as a college strength and conditioning coach, um, just showing those students the side of that field that you're not going to get from a textbook, um, so, you know, interacting with all the different people in an athletic department, how you're going to communicate with athletic trainers and kind of defending your program and doing all those things and teaching them stuff that you learn on the job that you don't learn, like I said, from the textbook. And, you know, that class, when I took it as a student, that lab portion was a huge part of like, okay, this is something I'm really interested in yeah. doing. And that sparked my interest. And it makes me sad that you know, the potential for one of those students that's really interested or could have been really interested, they've kind of missed that opportunity. And I've had a couple students um, reach out to me and say, hey, I'd love to talk to you and learn more. And I've just tried to be very available for those students, um, communicating with all the students, just checking in like, hey, how are you doing? Questions? Are you, you know, things like that. I've just tried to be really available for them. And but that's kind of the sad part for me that they've kind of missed out on that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, are you just pushing them to do once it's, you know, allowed or safe? Um, are you pushing them to get some shadowing hours and try to get a taste of that then? I mean, um, 
Yeah, the students that, that have reached out to me and shown a little more interest, you know, connecting them with people I know in the area or with my program um, itself, just for shadowing hours to learn more and, and spend time in the field to just understand, like, okay, do I want to do this? Is this not what I want to do? And, and Or what area of this field do I want to be in? Do I want to be in the private sector? Do I want to be with a Division One college? Um, do I want to be part of, you know, a health system type scenario. So um, I've really encouraged and tried to be as as helpful as, as possible to those students as as they've missed this opportunity. Right. Yeah. Hey, Phil, have you had people recently? I mean, I know you've had different staff come and go. And what about like university students? Like, listen, I, I've done a lot of book learning. Um, I've maybe even seen videos of how to get these cues down, but I need to do this for real. Do they come to you for that kind of stuff ever? Yeah, I'm starting to get more intern stuff. Like there's a girl at Wichita that's about three hours away that's that's graduating from Wichita State University and asked, you know, wrote me and asked to be an intern for a month and things oh. like that. Uh, sadly, that got torn apart due to the current situation. But yeah, because <laughs> yeah. um, it was supposed to be happening right now. But yeah, I'm getting more and more of that, and uh, or just come in for a weekend and things like that. And, and just work with them. Have them. I've had numerous people come in and just, how does one person handle 15 people doing 15 different things? And they want to see that. So, uh, yeah, we get some of that. Right. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Uh, do you have sort of a, I would almost expect you just being professorly to have some kind of a process to accept these kinds of students or something like that. Or is it something you just don't have the, you know, the time to sort of juggle both things, client on one hand and then, you know, the kid on the other hand kind of thing. Yeah. I just don't have the bandwidth right now. And because everything I do is online, it's like, I'm going to sit in my house and watch me peck away at a computer. <laughs> you know, it's right. like, we can go in the garage and, you know, throw in some cold water and measure stuff, but you could do that in a, a lab too. You know, I mean, I have had some people come in for, even if they are a student or just interested on, I'm like, hey, can we do a max test and look at a, a moxie and metabolic heart and everything else all at the same time and, you know, look at activation patterns, whatever, you know, so kind of a learn by doing uh, type thing. So, yeah. oh, hey, here's your data. Here's what the data means. Here's why we should probably do this test and this test. Um, and obviously, most people are going to be paying for that service. But um, so I've done some of that stuff and. I did start teaching a formal uh, mentorship, which is more for online uh, trainers or people trying to convert to online. So I started that in March, and that'll run for about uh, six months. And if that goes well, yeah, I may do it again as a virtual type thing starting next January. We'll see. Right. Yeah, I know we've talked about this in years past. When when I taught strength conditioning, I just did the lab portion or uh, the lecture rather, the lecture portion. And I we you know we would farm around for local experienced strength coaches, right, to do this kind of stuff. I mean, um so hence, you know, getting people that are they have real jobs and they work with clients all the time like full time like MC that then lends her expertise to the university setting like with with the labs and stuff like that. Um but I was you know, I'm like, listen, guys, this is a lot like X-Fizz Part 2 as far as the, the lecture part of this goes. We might talk a little bit more about um, neuromuscular function or something like that, of course, or get down into muscle histology or that kind of thing. But, I mean, basically, it's um, it's not coaching, right? Coaching is a whole nother major at universities. So mm -hmm. the, the, the things like cues and being able to – Tell someone that, you know, what order they're, are, you know, are they firing something in the right order or critiquing their hip hinge or something like that? I don't know. You know, that's not my field. And I'm like, and, and we need to have the respect to make referrals like that. I mean, I'm a nutritionist, you know. My personal background was strength training. Yeah, I mean, I got degrees in exercise physiology. But, Mike, you know, when I went through school and you too, we were at the tail end. If you like weight training, you're an oddball. Right. It was yeah. it was aerobic. It was endurance focused. <laughs> they would tease you for having a low VO2 max. I don't know. I'm sure at some point MCs laughed at me for having when I was when I was heavy, my VO2 max was 33. 
<laughs> Woo. It's not utterly horrible. It's not amazing, but it's not you know as bad as some people I've tested. <laughs> well, I just got the feeling that I wasn't geared toward it. When I was doing competitive Taekwondo like four times a week and you know heavy interval work and everything, it got up to 55 at one point. That's pretty oh, good. good, but I was a, yeah. I was skinny. Oh, that's respectable. But I was skinny, yeah. you know that. And then I put on all that weight, and then because it's per kg, yeah, per kg. Yeah, but you can look yeah. at the absolute <laughs> VO two also, not yeah. per body weight, but yeah. yeah. Oh right, exactly. Yeah, different ways to express that. Um, all right, so that's the sort of the classroom stuff or the the university lab stuff. What about your work with the health system? Um, are you are you reopening? What's what's going on with you there? So uh, I'm located in Ohio, but we've not gotten any real uh, guidance from, you know, local officials on when we can open. Um, as soon as we closed our doors, uh, I've been daily sending out emails. Um, it's kind of an overview. I work with middle school, high school athletes. I also work with a general adult population, and I do some sport rehab training, uh, as I mentioned earlier. But um, day, daily sending emails to my, to my adults, uh, every couple of weeks I'm sending, you know, a two or three week plan to athletes. Um, and you know, with no real opening date in sight, um, it's been a really big challenge to, uh, stay connected and stay engaged with, with our clients. And, you know, in the first couple of weeks, it's, you know, not too bad. You're sending emails, talking to people, reaching out to them, trying to stay in touch and, it's just, you know, we're going on week eight, I think, eight or nine, um, you know, reaching out to them and asking the same question. Hey, how are you doing? Like, yeah. how are you doing? Uh, how are you uh, staying busy? You know, when the current situation hasn't changed at all, like they're still staying at home. They still can't work out. They can't. It just sounds real repetitive of, you know, hey, what's up? So what we've tried to do, you know, me and my staff, we've tried to just create other ways to reach out to them. Um, just little tidbits about, you know, good sleep habits. Uh great snacking ideas or nutrition stuff on how to, you know, stay on track while you're home all day and uh, just different things like that. Um, And just trying to keep our training really engaging. And, you know, we have some group chats that, you know, each, each group is in and just trying to get them to stay competitive. Like, Hey, here's your circuit, time yourself, post your time, compete against each other. Like you would if we were all together and things like that to keep them all engaged. Uh, But that, that has been a huge challenge is, you know, reaching out to them and just trying not to try not to fall out of their head and trying to be present in their brain when so that when we do open, I, I get those people back. Um, and yeah. that's just our, our biggest challenge, I guess. Yeah, I, w- I would be afraid of attrition and, and lack of compliance and like, oh, my God, you know, because then they just start doing something else. Like, I mean, I admit the thought has crossed my mind once or twice. I mean, I have a pretty I'm lucky I've got a pretty functional, like basic gym in my basement. And I'm thinking well, I was paying 40 bucks a month to go to Peps and Train. You know, do I need to do that? No, the truth is, yes, I do, because my workouts are so half-assed at home, you know. Now, some people might be like, shame on yeah, you, Lowry, and- you know, but it's just harder. I like mentally getting in. It's like the ritual of get in the car, put on the metal, <laughs> drive to the gym. It takes me about 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes. The caffeine kicks in. You know, that kind of stuff. And I just, not only that, but once you're there, it's dedicated. You're like, I'm not going to walk out of here in 20 minutes. But here at home, I dabble in the basement. And I'm like, oh, I got to grade that stack of papers. And I might go up and grade a few. <laughs> and then I'll come back and do a few reps. And that's not a good idea, you know. Um, yeah, and something I've learned from, from my clients is a lot of them have told me, like, I had the same thought, like, well, you know, if they realize that they can work out at home all the time and it's just, you know, they feel like it's just as good, maybe they won't come back. But I've got a lot of feedback from my clients of just like, I hate working out at home. It's so much harder to motivate myself. Like, (laughs) I didn't realize how actually motivating the group was. And it's funny because we're a group setting, right? And all those people have told me how much they enjoy working out in a group. And my thought is, well, that's why you found the group, right? That's why you're part of our group because you, you enjoy that environment. It's motivating for you. So I was, I'm slightly concerned, but I do think I'll, I'll get people back. Cause it's like you said, it's so much harder to hold yourself accountable, um, to make it, you know, an hour, like our classes are an hour, right? Like it's hard to fill an hour by yourself sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. and 
and it's also hard to push yourself too, you know, like if someone else in the group is going up in weight or going faster or doing whatever. Sometimes you'll just kind of go with them when you have the ability to do that, where at home, there's no one to gauge your, your level of effort off of. And, and that's something that they've given me feedback on that is really challenging for them at home. So, right. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, and there's people like me, I'm post competitive, you know, and people who are really competitive, maybe they've got a nice gym set up at home and they, they're going to be like, they're going to be training their butts off because they have that sort of intrinsic motivation to prepare for the next event. But a lot of your clients probably don't. So I got to see, I got to think the communication and just keeping tabs open like that is just, it's got to be huge when you can call them back, you know? Yeah. And I just try to encourage them. We eventually will reopen. And when we do reopen, you're going to want to have done something. You yeah. know, we don't want to start from square one. And, you know, maybe that leads into our discussion about, you know, I've talked with my staff a lot about, like, how the heck are we even going to program when this comes back, right? Like, we're going to have to be real careful. Um, we're going to have to uniquely figure out who's done something and who's done nothing. So that's going to be, you know, from a safety standpoint, that's just going to be really important for us to be conscious of we can't just pick up where we left off and go full full like full speed ahead so um to me definitely something that's important to think about and and uh be aware of as we reopen that um it makes me think about the covid guidelines here the nsca released about return to training a lot of this stuff seems kind of obvious um but you know maybe to people who are used to it you know, like during the first two to four weeks, you'd have to think about work to rest ratios. Don't apply huge amounts of intensity times volume. Emphasize 10 to 20 minute daily dynamic warm ups. Expect some DOMs. People are going to get sore. Yeah. Um, there are some some nice little gold nuggets in this document, though, from the NSCA, like communicate regularly, like identify at risk athletes. Uh, maybe it's people that are convalescing and, you know, they, they've actually been infected. I mean, we have to think about these kinds of things and when is it safe to, you know, put them back to work and how much uh, work you're going to put them back to. But uh, even readiness surveys and things like that, it's interesting kinds of kinds of stuff. Uh, Mike, what about your, your people? If they're online predominantly anyway, what do you do to keep tabs open? Like, you know, any note comparison with MC because you're you're more natively online. Yeah, I think it's similar. I mean, I've been pretty fortunate. Only about three clients have really kind of dropped off, um, which is pretty good. Um, and, you know, because most people I work with are trainers, you know, so they're, you know, a couple of them, their gyms have been closed down and all that kind of stuff. So it's been kind of, kind of crazy. I probably spent more time, I'd say, overall on my end working with clients now than I ever have just from, getting new equipment. Oh, I got new bands. Oh, I got finally got a pair of dumbbells now. Okay. So now I'll rewrite this. And then you had the whole rewriting stuff at first and then the gym closed and then where they were at closed. And, you know, some of them we've just shifted to a lot of aerobic based stuff. You know, I have a guy who wants to gain a fair amount of mass and I'm like, eh, he's got body weight and he has rings, you know, that's about it. And the rings he has to take and go to a park and, and do them. So it's not super accessible. Um, so I'm like, well, maybe we just look at some aerobic based stuff. Maybe we try to get you just a, you know, a little bit leaner, keep as much strength as you can, you know, and then when you can kind of get back to a gym and, you know, first world gravity and that kind of stuff, we'll, we'll shift again. So trying to shift a lot of um, priorities of what they have for equipment, you know, even teaching some people how to run. I'm like, hey, now is probably a really good time to work on your running mechanics. I know you're not a runner. That's not your main thing. But you've got one set of bands and body weight. And that's literally it, you know. So maybe that's a good idea to work on some of those mechanics. Obviously, we'll rewrite a lot of body weight type stuff too. Oh, look, your aerobic max is, or VO2 max is pretty low. Hey, we can probably work on this for the next four to eight weeks. So when you get back to the gym and shift priorities again, you're going to be able to recover better and, you know, do it in a way you're not going to be so destroyed in the process too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? As I look at this document here, this guidelines, it's, it's literally for strength conditioning coaches returning to activity with their teams. So here's what it suggests as far as minimizing risk upon returning. Um, Adhere to social gathering and distancing policies for your state, group size counts, um, 
schedule mid and post workout cleaning periods with 15 minute buffers, essentially 10 to 15 between teams or groups. Um, limit workouts to two to three non consecutive days per week. I think that's interesting because universities are talking about that with classes too. Like, how do you mm. limit the time in groups um, or, you know, times per week frequency? Um, use bar catches or two spotter technique, right? To limit, like, you know, direct contact. Mm-hmm. Um, have a one way traffic flow through your facility. That's an interesting idea. I've seen that in some grocery stores. They have arrows and stuff. Um, mm. I guess so that way people don't get sweaty and backtrack through where the, you know, the fresh people are coming in, I suppose. Um, Mm. Maximize fresh airflow. Um, Have a relative humidity around 60%. Now, that's got to be hard to control, especially in a big place like Mm -hmm. Phil's. Use outdoor training and keep doors propped open and lights on throughout the day. What about outdoor stuff, Phil? Is that going to be something you incorporate coming back? I mean, the weather's going to get better. Yeah, we do that anyways. We're, it's that time of year where we start. Everybody wants that. So we get out as much as we can with sleds and things like that. Um, the strongman training starts to really kick up more. Um, so, yeah, we'll definitely be outside. So, okay, yeah. Once they allow us to. <laughs> right, yeah. Are you going to focus on that anymore? I mean, it's, it's not a bad idea. I mean, you've got lots of fresh air circulation, direct UV light on people. Do you do any lifting outside, or is it just – Not a lot. No, it's just the conditioning stuff. I mean, it's it's a little hard for – just the nature of how we run things. With me watching so many different people, it would be a pain in the ass for me to be inside and outside <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. You know, yeah. when I've got four lifters doing – you know, getting ready for an Olympic lifting meet, four getting ready for a powerlifting meet, and then some strongman, I just – I can't. Especially with Olympic lifting, it demands that my eyes are on them. Yeah. Uh, it's not impossible. Well, because so. let's face it, it's more of a novelty in a hoot. You know, I think about like Arnold yeah. born in the woods with the squat bar and stuff, you know, yeah. and a keg of beer. <laughs> yeah, most of the outside stuff, it's like, go drag that down there, bring it back. So, <laughs> yeah. Let's eat a little bit. Okay. So, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you, Mike, you were talking about running outside. I mean, that I guess that's an option or hiking or some ways to get, you know, a, keep your, your, aerobic base yeah yeah and I, I mean i'm fortunate here i got a bunch of stuff in the garage but even then like on weekends and stuff i'll take the rower out and put it in the middle of the street and do stuff like that so if people have like a you know an echo bike or some type of bike or a rower they can always move it outside too you know it's crazy how many gyms you go to people are like oh it's so humid it's horrible inside i'm like all you have to do is pick the thing up on wheels and row it like six feet and you can be outside Oh, that's so crazy. <laughs> you know, but then you go to other gyms, and they got the whole rowers, like, you know, lined up outside already, ready to go. Uh, so, MC, my question for you, I guess, from working from a, a healthcare system point of view, um, this document that I'm looking at, it talks about consider providing masks and gloves. They must mean for the staff. I can't, like, how are you going to do that if you're a lifter? Yeah. Um uh, but do you anticipate, because of the nature of your your main gig there, that they're going to be having you guys wear masks and whatnot, or is it just going to be keep your social distance? Do you know? Um, well, as a staff member, we are we are required, so I absolutely have to while coaching, um, and that'll be interesting. Okay. Um, just because I never stop moving, I'm talking, I'm yelling. Also, that's going to change a little with. Uh, the size of our groups is going to be extremely different. Um, you know, on a busy day, I, you know, I might have 10 or 12 adults. Uh, I'm going to be down to probably two or three at, at a time in one class. Um, yeah. so, um, so my location, it's a small space. Our lifting area is a, is a pretty small space. It's two flat, two platforms and some floor space, but then we have access to the rest of our facility, you know, a basketball court, uh, like you know cardio equipment so we move around the facility so that's also going to change um we may not have access to the basketball court they might put cardio equipment in there to spread it out um so i'm going to be kind of at the mercy of what the rest of my facility does um i will try to go outside as much as possible um we've discussed masks for our you know people that are currently training um kind of going to have to go with what people are comfortable with. Yeah. Uh, we can't require it, but 
you know, there's just so much that's come out that says how effective that can be. Um, if both people in a scenario are wearing a mask, how much that can help. Um, it's not 100% foolproof, like it's not going to totally prevent the spread of anything, but it can significantly reduce the spread. Um, so, you know, it's going to it's going to be interesting to see if, if people want to do that um, while we're lifting. I think maybe um, if we're not moving really quickly, if we're not. I don't know. It's going to be kind of trial and error for us. Gloves, I think definitely not. <laughs> yeah. One thing we've talked about is if I have six people, we got three exercises, three people moving through three exercises and sharing equipment. I think that's not going to happen anymore. Um, no sharing of equipment. They're going to use the same piece of equipment or one piece of equipment and they're going to clean it and then put it away when they're done. So a lot of changes on how we run things. And like I said, those people that really enjoy the group setting, it's almost, it's a social thing for them. Right. Um, we're going to kind of lose that, which is going to stink. Um, it's going to be two people and me and my 10 people in one hour is going to become four or five hours of coaching for me. So that's going to be a challenge, a big challenge, but I'm at the mercy of the regulations of, of the healthcare system that I'm part of. Um, and, you know, distancing in our space is going to be a challenge. Um, I've talked to, you know, kind of other people in our facility and some of the regulations that they're anticipating. Just a couple different scenarios of, you know, just basic capacity guideline. Like, okay, based on fire code, you got to be at 25 or 50% capacity and just letting people in based on that. Um, then maybe some other scenarios are, you know, square foot per, per person. So 10 or 15 square feet per person in your facility and that's kind of how they gauge the capacity so it's going to be very interesting as we try to adapt to a, a new maybe a new normal mm -hmm. um i think it's gonna be a lot of trial and error and just making sure that we're providing an environment where people feel safe and they want to train it's going to be be a challenge so we'll see yeah M maybe it's it's almost a little premature to be checking in because this hasn't really started. We're just, just talking about about to open the doors, you know, on in a limited way. But the the fun stuff, I guess, will come from like you said, like the trial and error. Like, oh my god, that didn't work, you know, or maybe something comes along that does work that you don't think about. Um, like some of the stuff it says, keep bottles of disinfectant, you know, sitting around so the athletes themselves can wipe down the equipment. Phil mentioned that last week. I think that's a that's kind of a no-brainer. Like, you used it, you clean it um, before oh, and yeah. after. Oh, you yeah. Know. And, I mean, I've made a huge order of cleaning supplies already. I mean, just in, <laughs> in preparation, just to make sure it's there. And, um, yeah, they're gonna, people are going to be cleaning their own stuff. So, they, And they're used to that just from the way that I run my program. They're completely used to that before this craziness started. So nothing yeah. new there. But Well, you know, along the same lines – Phil, I don't know if you can do this the way your gym is set up because it's sort of, you know, big warehousey kind of thing, but having people wash their hands when they come in and when they leave and then Purell in between, you know, that makes sense to me. Like, don't, you know, if you're not going to do temperature checks or something like that when they come in, wash your freaking hands before you enter the weight room. It sounds funny, yeah. but that seems reasonable to me. Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah, yours is just use HIPAA cleanse. So even clients that would come over, you don't take them to the guest bathroom. Okay, here's exactly how you do it. Put a little bit on here. Wash this around for, you know, 30, 40 seconds. And, I mean, I've done that for eight years now. Because my thought was your hands are the thing that are touching everything. Yeah. You know, so if you're going to try to spread something, that at least make sure that they're clean. And, you know, that will stay active on a, their hands for several hours afterwards, too. So. How do you get that, Mike? I mean, you, you get that through back channels, don't you? <laughs> no, you can buy it at like almost every store right now. Oh, okay. Like you could buy it at Cub Foods, Target. We went and ordered more, and they whacked the price up like about two or th so. Initially, you could buy it like everywhere, and then as of about three weeks ago, it got really hard to get. So we ended up paying like three times right. the normal price. Price gouging. Uh, mm. But we have enough now for the next year, so we're good. Mm. <laughs> and it's called HIPAA Cleanse, just for listeners? Yeah, it's called HIPAA Cleanse. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's actually what surgeons use a lot of times to scrub in. Granted, there's a little bit different procedure with it, but it's kind of a pink-looking colored little uh, liquid uh, you can use. 
Okay. Yeah, and that basically it makes it hard for viruses to stick to their hands. Is that the idea, or um? Yeah, so it's a disinfectant, and then it appears to stay active. I think some of their studies have said 12 to 24 hours. Um, now, I don't know if that applies to lifters, you know, with your hands on bars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I figure, eh, at least it's got some data to show that it does what it says it does, and it stays active for a while. And, you know, if they're using it in a slightly different way, but to scrub in for sterile medical procedures, that's probably going to be good enough for me to go lift some stuff and put your hands on things in the gym. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things of this checklist, it talks about cl- cleanliness is it's not just the bar, you know, or the bike, like the bikes at Pep's oh, yeah. gym are, they've got streaks of sweat on them all the time, you know, from people <laughs> doing cardio, but, um, bathrooms, well, other surfaces where they come in, you know, that kind of stuff, stuff that you might not think about, I guess, as much with the weight belts, um, the plates themselves, not just the bars, um, I've noticed when I'm cleaning downstairs, we've got this like concentrate Lysol spray stuff, but it's, I tend to get lazy and just want to spray it with, with Lysol mist kind of thing, you know, instead of wiping it down. But, um, as this kind of got started, you know, and the heightened cleaning regulations went, uh, right before we closed, one of the things we stopped doing was we, we kind of stopped using bands if at all possible, just cause they're a little harder to clean, um, as hmm. opposed to a kettlebell or a dumbbell that you can clean a little bit better uh so that that might be something we do as well as just adjust kind of some of the equipment that we're using just to ease cleaning and make people feel a little more comfortable oh yeah that's a good point um phil i was just going to ask you about whether it's the cleaning or um are you going to literally like uh, write down procedures or you how do you communicate with everybody what your expectations are when you reopen because i mean you don't want to have an outbreak at strength guild that's bad <laughs> that's bad pr yeah. you know bad um, PR. my people do a good job they're used to listening so if i tell them they do it okay, um, okay. It, it's really that simple you know all we did like right now we have extra clorox wipes and things like that a bottle of spray and you know we just bring in what they need you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna tell my people you need to bring in some wipes you know we we supply it all now use it yeah, you know, yeah. Is all is all we have to do. It's I mean, it's free. <laughs> yeah, my people are pretty. They're not stupid. It's so, right. You know. Yeah, at least free is part of the facility package yeah. or whatever. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, yeah, the communicate regularly too. Uh, it does bring up a lot of stuff. Like MC, when you said like the uh, trial and error kinds of things, um, what happens if somebody gets sick? Or if you're one of your trainers get sick, like what's what's the contingency plan? Do you just let everybody know, like through your social media channel or what, or some private group or something that you let them know um, who's sick? Um, how's that going to work? I wonder. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I hope I don't have to deal with that scenario, mm-hmm. but um, I know. Being part of a healthcare system, obviously, there's a whole procedure on contacting anyone that's been in contact with them, probably closing the facility for, you know, a, a cleaning period or um, that kind of thing. And hopefully that's not the case. Um, we will be doing screening. So just entering any of our facilities, you have to get your temperature taken, answer screening questions. Wow. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So hopefully that helps us to eliminate anyone coming in that could be sick but as we've said you can be sick asymptomatic not carrying it or not know you're carrying it and so that's unavoidable obviously but uh, trying to do everything we can to try and avoid that um but there's there's a whole procedure if one of our staff is sick um if if anyone that we've come in contact with is sick so um Thankfully, I don't have to develop that procedure, but hopefully I don't have to, to deal with it. Yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, for trainers who are listening, if you're part of a larger system, that's one of the benefits. They're going to have a lot of this stuff in place. They're going to have detailed policy and procedure manuals and stuff, including for this stuff, because they, they don't want liability for, you know, not handling it responsibly, I guess. You know, um, yeah, well, we're winding down. I just, again, I just wanted to kind of look at some of these tips, Um that last question I asked you was partly because I always started thinking about a contingency plan. Like we have one um, dorm uh, at our university that's, you know, it's pretty sparse. 
Now, it might not be when we start to like if when students come back in the fall, if they spread them out, they might spread into these less used dorms. Right. But I would hope that they have a portion of that dorm for sick profs. Because somebody might say, oh, the university students, they're not an extreme risk population, um, just like some of the fit, the very fit people we're talking about, right? And before we hit record, everybody, we were having a discussion about the different response to viruses you know, and infection that fit people have versus obese, sedentary people. Um, but I would like to see some dedicated space for what happens when one of the profs gets sick. I mean, just because the customers are fit – what happens if you have an older trainer or an older prof? A lot of professors are old, you know, some even wizardly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so that's an at risk, you know, and so can we can we shelter up in one of these dorms so we don't take it home to our elderly spouse? You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are going to when the rubber hits the road, we're going to have to start figuring this stuff out. Public water fountains. I got to think that those are just a big no, no. Now are, are they all just going to get yellow taped? Uh, it does make you wonder about that stuff. Um, yeah. A lot of stuff. Mike, any final thoughts from you? Because I mean, obviously you have a lot of medical background and, and that kind of stuff, but I mean, there's not going to be much different for you. Like, Former versus not, now, right? Or not per se. Um, you know, like I said, I've been fortunate. Most of my clients have been, you know, online, so most of them have, have stayed. But you know, the longer it goes, the more that's going to become, you know, at risk too, which I totally understand. Uh, here we're stuck till around 14th or 18th, and after that, I would assume there'd be some some guidelines. But I mean. For now, for just in-person testing, I don't have anybody scheduled. I mean, I don't necessarily need it as part of my main income per se. I just do it more as a service and something I like doing. So I just said until, you know, we figure out what's going on and after probably at least a couple of weeks after they open, you know, then we'll see. And But even then, it's just a, one person at a time. You know, the most I've ever had here is four people training at once. You know, and that was people in the street and two people in the garage gym and myself. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was rare. That's only happened a handful of times ever. So normally it's just a one or two person, you know, type thing. So that's easier to manage too. Right, right on. You know, one thing I'd like to see technology em- get embraced is stuff like I've seen these garages uh, in China, just watching the news, where they pull buses in and they just blast them with like UVC light or a strong <laughs> UVB light during the night. Wouldn't that be neat if gyms just, you know, you could start equipping them with um, get everybody out of the gym and just turn on the bright UV lights, you know, all night long or for however long you need to do that and see if that has any kind of benefit. I mean, it's it's, it's going to be neat to see how some of these things get explored. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know, Strength Guild, there's going to be places that are just harder. Because I mean, my gym is not that unlike yours, Phil. I mean, the, the setup is quite different. But as far as a lot of the cleaning stuff and the instructions and the way we communicate, a lot of it just feels common sensey. you know? Like, yeah. just just do what Pep says or like Phil's. Just do what Phil says, you know? Um, he's going to try to keep communication and the sanitation under control. Um, and why were you not washing your hands when you went to the bathroom before? <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> you should be doing that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science because gross. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was the airport, like how many times do you see people run into the airport restroom of all places and then just walk out? You're like, yeah. oh, oh, oh yeah. God. Well, you know, that that brings up a point, though, Mike. Sometimes I I will if I walk into a public bathroom and it's splattered water all over and it's all messy, I'm not going to plunge my hands into that viral mess. So I usually get a wipe or uh, alcohol or something like that uh, because it's almost uh, counterproductive. You know, you walk up to this water droplets everywhere and I'm like, ah, you know, (laughs) Uh, like I'm not sure that's going to be good for me. Um, especially like somewhere like an airport, you know, like how many different people from God knows what origin <laughs> they just come in and they're just splattering their whatever all over. I don't know about that stuff, but um, 
some kind of sanity. It's not like I, I'm not one of those people that would offend you, though. At least you'd be like, well, at least he's Purelling. <laughs> oh, yeah, at least he did something. I was at an airport, was it New York? I don't remember. And they had put a air thing right next to the sink. So the sink had two things. One water would come out, and the next one you would stick your hands under it, and the hot air would come out. But the idiots who designed it never thought, well, you're blasting hot air into the sink, so it all comes up in your face. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah. I'm like, who does, this is a horrible idea. You have people washing supposedly all the germs off their hand, and now you're blasting air into the same sink, which is throwing <laughs> it up to right. their face of all right. places. Right. Like, I mean, MC's horrible. talking about aerosolized, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wear a mask to prevent the slightest droplets, and this is just blasting it in your face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, MC. Um, it's just thank good you. to have you on. Yeah. You know, because you, yeah, you have. Thanks for having me. You got that dual background. Like, you know, you're working two settings that are quite different from what Phil and Mike do, you know. Yeah. In um, that both are part of big systems where you're trying to be responsible and, and roll things out. And it's oh, just going to be. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Very interesting. I'm eager, eager to get back to my to my real job, but I don't know that it will be the same. So yeah, definitely <laughs> we'll not. See. Yeah, at least not for we'll for quite a while. Yeah. All right. Yep. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Yep. 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 Thanks for cool. having me. Yep. Thank you. Morning. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at IronRadio.org? There are three halls in the store one for phil one for fortress and one for myself dr lowry and they're thematic so you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. So we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.